Hello and welcome to Everyday Injustice Podcast, where we highlight the everyday injustice that befalls the criminal justice system. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the last 10 years, as Vanguard Court Watch, we have operated court watches in California, San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? To shine a light on everyday injustice in the court system. And now more broadly, we shine a light on injustice in the criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions and prosecutorial misconduct and mass incarceration. In 2013, there was a series of armed robberies at convenience stores in Killeen, Texas. There was a video evidence from many of these stores, and this evidence was released by Crime Stoppers to the public with the promise of $1,000 for people who could provide information. The hotel keeper of the place that George Powell was staying at reported George to Crime Stoppers. While the face may be similar, the height differences was a major player. All of the witnesses testified that the armed man was about 5'6 to 5'8, but George Powell was 6'3. Video evidence also appeared to corroborate the same thing until Michael Knox, who runs a forensic consulting firm, did a 3D animation where the person in the video appeared to be 6'1 at a certain angle. Police also reported to have been singling out George in particular in photo lineups. The use of forensics convinced the jurors enough to convict him, and he's been serving 11 out of his 28 years. Then a pen pal of George read about his case independent of him and ended up calling the Forensic Science Division in Texas about the video. They learned that the evidence that Knox had created had been done on a program he was not trained in. Additionally, there were clearer images where the man in the video was standing straight that Knox should have compared George to instead. As a result, they discovered that George and the perpetrator were completely different people. So we welcome to the show George Powell. How you doing, George? Fine, David. Thank you very much, very much for asking. Um, I'm doing fine, even though I'm going through many, many struggles right now after you know being released from a, a prison sentence uh, of 28 years that I served 11 years on. It's, it's really hard going through this transition. Um, everybody has a lot of good advice, but as far as me going out there and, and, and settling back into society, is proving itself to be very challenging. So when were you released? I was released on September 25th, 2019, but I was released from the Bell County Jail on a hundred and fifty thousand dollar bail. I have a leg monitor on an ankle, an ankle monitor on my leg with a GPS on it that I have to pay a hundred and forty two dollars every two weeks on time, or I go back to jail. 
And you have a trial hanging over you, is that correct? I'm facing a life sentence for the same robbery that I was charged and convicted of, that my case was overturned on. I'm facing another life sentence for it, yes, sir. And and when is the trial coming up for that one? We don't we don't know because there's a lot of there's a couple of different factors at play right now. Um, the Innocence Project of Texas, my attorney, Mr. Michael Ware, who's the executive director of the Innocence Project, and Mr. Walter Reeves, who is the vice president, both of them represent me. And right now we are going to court on November 25th because we filed a motion to disqualify the Bell County District Attorney's Office, Henry Garza being the district attorney of the county, and his staff from further prosecution of this case. We are seeking a special prosecutor. So on that date, a substitute judge, because the 27th Judicial District Court Judge John Gant has recused himself from making a, a, a ruling on the motion um, so he doesn't appear biased. Um, on that date, hopefully the special prosecutor will disqualify Bell County District Attorney's Office from prosecuting this case, and we'll get a special prosecutor in. Wow. So that's a long-winded explanation, but it's a whole lot of stuff going on. Um, so the trial date is not nowhere near nowhere near in sight understood so why don't we go back in time uh and maybe you can explain what the crime was and how it was that you ended up getting caught up in the case in the first place okay let's go back in time in 2002 i came to texas from north carolina So I, I was pursuing my dream in music. I'm a writer. I, I observe things and I write them down in a lyrical form. And I, that's how I communicate. You know, I use my gift and my talent to do that. So I came here to pursue that dream. When I got here, it all, it all worked out beautifully. I didn't have an actual plan. It just started working out for me. I met somebody who had already had their own CD ready to go. And he put me on his team and I started going into the communities and helping him promote his CD. And when he couldn't sell his own CD for more than $7, I was getting $20 a piece for them. You know, my salesmanship was out of this world, right? So along the course of that, the police department, Colleen police department started getting phone calls that I was soliciting the CD in the, in the, in the community. Um, the project wasn't a negative project. It, it doesn't even it didn't even pr promote any negativity at all. It was just music, and they would come up and they would ask me uh, what I was doing and and why I was in the area, and I would give them my explanation, and then they would tell me, "Well, you can't do that. That's illegal." Um, and then, of course, you know, in my younger years, I would get frustrated with that, and I would respond in a negative way. You can imagine, you know, how that trajectory went because I was getting, I became so noticeable to the Colleen Police Department that every single 
week, if not every single other day or every day, there would always be a contact between us. And that went on for five and a half years. But as as time progressed, um, my projects became more more meaningful and uh, I, it turned into a dedication to the soldiers. So at that same time, there was the Iraq and Afghanistan conflict. So our soldiers were, were, were supporting me and my music, right? And then they were getting deployed and I started writing songs for the soldiers. And when they were coming back, this is, this is what it all led up to. The soldiers were my number one supporters. And I created music for them. So the soldiers would tell me the Colleen Police Department was writing them tickets for various different things. And they were getting fines, the maximum amount of fines. And it, 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 really, it really touched my heart in a way where I felt like each and every one of these soldiers are being targeted for their danger and their hazard pay. And it concerned me so deeply that I started talking about it in my music. And then I started getting more and more community people supporting my project. I had businesses that wanted me to come to their locations to promote my project. The soldiers wanted me to promote, wanted to, wanted to support me in my efforts. And then it got to the point where the MWR and the USO Department of the Army, who, who, who basically schedules entertainment for the soldiers, were interested in what I've done because I had just written and recorded a song called Thank You, Soldier. So everything started going good for me, but I was telling the truth about the police department targeting the soldiers for their danger and hazard pay. Um, I didn't know statistics. I didn't know that, that that's how it works. You think that, that, that law enforcement has to figure out ways to generate revenue for itself. Um, and during that time, the trend was target the soldiers. And I started speaking about it. So that that's the beginning of what happened before I got charged with these five aggravated robberies. I see. And, and so what happened with the robberies? So I, 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 I frequented convenience stores. Okay. I, I didn't discriminate. I went everywhere in Colleen and all the surrounding areas too. Um, I just, I just would show up. And I became more and more professional as I learned in five and a half years that you get the best response by treating people with with respect and, and approaching them in the right way. So I uh I, I was a, I was I was a regular at all these convenience stores. And then all of a sudden when the robbery started happening, I would come home and 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 my lady would tell me, she said, uh, you need to be careful because somebody's robbing these stores that you promote your CD in front of. And I, and I just, and I seen the news reports and I'd be like, I'm not worried about that. He said, any store that I'm at, ain't nobody going to rob that store because I'm security while I'm there. You know, that's, that's the way I looked at it. And, uh, and then one robbery happened, two robbery happened, the five robberies happened. I didn't know anything. I don't know who's committing these robberies. But I'm going to be at the store, and if something like that ever jumped off, I'm going to be the first one to stop. That's how I'm thinking. 
So then the last robbery that happened, I think it was June 9th, and all, all of a sudden they're broadcasting all these robberies on the news. And June 10th passes, June 11th passes, June 12th passes, and then all the way to the 17th. And I'm left my I left my motel to go to the car lot to make a payment on my car. And when I pull into the car lot, I looked over my shoulder after I got out my car, and there's like eight or nine police officers with their with their guns drawn on me. And I look over my shoulder, and I'm like, okay. And I thought that it was a response. This may sound like it doesn't make sense, but I thought it was a response to my music being played loud and that maybe they were behind me while I was driving to the car lot and wouldn't pull over. It didn't see them in my rear view. But I know I look in my rear view all the time and I didn't see nobody behind me. So I don't understand where they came from, but now they're there. And all I did was drop to my knees thinking it was because my music was too loud and I didn't stop. So they put me in handcuffs. And they threw me in the police car, and I kept asking them, okay, now what is this about? Because I'm expecting them to come up and say, well, you know, you you, uh, you you were fleeing from an officer or something. But it didn't turn out that way. When I finally got to the police station, they tell, they told me, well, you're being, you're being charged with an aggravated armed robbery. And when I got told that, I mean, I didn't know what to say. I didn't, I'm in handcuffs. I'm in custody. I, my whole world started crashing on me. I'm like, what? Um, and you think it was because of the music? It's because, man, it was because, it's, it's something, I, I'm going to be totally honest with everybody. Me, the audacity that I have, my temperament at that time, my influences in music, um, my rebelliousness, uh, my district, my, I didn't really care about the law as far as the police officers go. I felt like the police officers were, 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 were too abusive anyway. I felt like they were constantly harassing me. So in my music, I did speak out against the police department. I did speak about out against the court system and the justice system. I didn't feel like there was any justice. So yeah, I, I built a, a situation through my bad attitude. Okay, so how is it that you end up convicted out of all this? Okay, now the number one thing is I was in the custody of the Bell County Sheriff's Department in their in the county jail, so I didn't have access to any resources. I was given a court-appointed attorney. There was no way I could pay for a private attorney because I was being, I was charged with three aggravated robberies and I was charged with another aggravated robbery in another county and a suspect for another aggravated robbery. So I'm in custody. I can't, I can't afford a private attorney, anybody that's going to really work for me. So while I'm in custody, I'm, I'm trapped inside of a, 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 jail, a dungeon of a jail cell. Um, most of the time I was in custody, I was kept in segregation. So it, it really restricted me from my communication with people on the phone. 
Um, everybody that I had in my life turned their backs on me because I'm being accused of five aggravated robberies. Nobody wants that in their life. And the prosecution took advantage of that. So they started casting characters for my trial. They started a jailhouse snitch who's not really a snitch because he lied about me confessing to him. And, and, and so it's not really snitching. It's lying so he can get his charges dropped off of him. The prosecutors really needed that, so they used that. Um, the Crime Stoppers caller, who just needed $1,000 because I'm going to tell the truth right here and right now, because, yes, she was the manager of the motel that I lived at, but she was also a crackhead. Her and her boyfriend both needed money so they could smoke crack, so they wanted to put me as the suspect, easy money. So they already knew me and the police had problems. So that wasn't going to be a problem for the police to charge me. And then, since the prosecution, since the prosecution, and I'm going to namely say Henry Garza and his office, his assistant district attorney, Paul and Leslie McWilliams, a husband and wife team prosecuting my case, they started looking for an expert, which everybody's going to believe an expert. And his name was Michael Knox. And he's out of, and he's a Florida sheriff's deputy. Now, at the time, I don't know any of this is going on. I'm expecting to hear from my attorneys, them telling me, oh, well, well, we need to get an expert. They never did. We need to get this. We need to get that. They never get, came at me with anything. They never came at me with, well, what witnesses can we prove? I had an alibi witness. She was never brought in. Um, I had a computer with a hard drive on it that also showed what where I was because I was on the on the internet at the motel at the time the robbery and probably all the robberies were happening. Um so my alibi was never brought in. But the main thing is the Michael Knox thing, the state expert. They contracted this guy who claimed he was an expert. Okay? That's the only word that matters in this scenario. So he uses a program called photogrammetry, but he doesn't use it for height evaluation. He uses it for traffic reconstruction to, to, to use the science to prove or disprove the elements of a traffic accident or maybe even whatever else that's related to. My case is the first case he's ever done dealing with height evaluation. And in order to do use this program, you have to use the camera that's calibrated with the program to take pictures of the of the of the of the traffic accident, skid marks, and and, and things. So you can do use the program to do the math. You can't use an unknown camera. It has to be used by a known camera. But he nobody knows it. So he fabricated a result that stated that the person in the robbery videos was no less than six foot one, even though the the video shows you that the guy's head is at the middle, top of the middle sticker. There's three stickers on the door frame. His head is at the top of the middle sticker. And that middle sticker is measured at five foot eight. The six foot, the top sticker starts at six foot one, I think. And the top of that sticker ends at six foot two and two thirds. And I'm six foot three every day. So the state expert with 
with with the combination of the prosecution, Paul and Leslie McWilliams asking these questions, um, pretty much tag team me in my defense and convinced the jury that the person in the video was six foot one, even though that the victim described the person that robbed her as five foot six. Wow. And the high sticker shows you he's five foot eight. But check this out, David. I need to add this. The victim in her original description of the suspect was five foot ten. When ten minutes later when the supervising officer, Crossman, shows up at the robbery scene, she changed it from five foot ten to five foot six. Because five foot ten was too tall. If five foot ten is too tall, then what is six foot three? Yeah, it seems like a big discrepancy. But, but, I mean, but because I was in jail, what could I do? I'm sitting in jail under a six hundred thousand dollar bond. Everybody in my life turned their backs on me. I'm supposed to be out here doing this music for soldiers. All of a sudden, I'm charged with five aggravated robberies. My reputation is destroyed. Now I'm a piece of crap who was out here committing robberies, robbing women in convenience stores, harm, uh, harmless, uh, defenseless women in convenience stores. Here I am, this big guy, and I just, man, I, they just ruined my life. And I'm now I'm out here again, and I can't even get a job. I'm, I'm struggling, man. I'm suffering, man. I'm about to, about to lose my mind, David. I hear you. Um, so how is it that you end up uh, be, uh, basically having the conviction thrown out? I'm going to tell you how. Because of God. Because that's what my faith needs to be in God right now anyway. Because God allowed Tamara Parsons, who lived way up in Canada. I'm in Texas. And she lives way up in Canada. And she becomes my pen pal from a prisoner. from a, It's called writeaprisoner.com. And we connect. And the, the beautiful thing is she and I were writing back and forth. Um, and something connected us. She, she believed me. And she took, brought her, she took her life savings. She packed her stuff. She, she just packed just a couple things. She moved all, she went all the way across country. She left Canada, ended up on the East Coast to, to visit somebody. And then after that, she drove from Philadelphia all the way to Texas to settle down here. And she moved to Huntsville, Texas, near, near a unit that I was at called the Walls Unit. And from there, she immediately started working on my case. She started contacting, the, she started by contacting the Texas Forensic Science Commission. And it took them two years to get involved in my case, but they're because of the discrepancies, the height stuff, but the, the expert, the state's expert, her and my dad put together $16,000, contract this expert, 
to do a height evaluation and a voice identification because there's audio from one of the robberies that all of the victims from the other robberies identified as being the same voice they remember hearing when they were robbed, and he even said the same thing. So this expert does his analysis on both of them things, comes back and says, no, the person in the video was five foot eight versus the versus the state's expert saying six foot one. And the Texas Forensic Science Commission took those and deliberated those for almost two years. Well, actually, yeah, two years. And finally, when they accepted the case, because they don't, it's very hard to get these agencies to take your case. It's a Texas agency on top of that, commissioned by the governor's office of Texas. So when they accepted my case, after they were done looking at it thoroughly, they came back and concluded that the state experts is a fraud, bogus, no good. And when that happened, the Innocence Project of Texas finally took my case. And that's Mr. Michael Ware and Walter Reed. Uh, they took my case. And when they took my case, that's when the media started getting involved. And that's when a whole bunch of other things started happening for me. So that was the turnaround in the case. So let me ask you this, so, George. Um, yes, sir. So it go, uh, do they take it back to court? Does the uh, appellate court throw out the conviction? What happens? Okay, so what happens is that, that at that stage, the Innocence Project, Michael Ware, and Walter Reeves filed a thing called a writ in 1107 writ of habeas corpus and they took my case in 2015 and by november of 2016 is when they filed the writ they claimed they claimed nine different grounds and the main thing they claimed was actual innocence now this is another story all by itself because now we're getting into the we're getting into the corruption in the high court of texas the Court of Criminal Appeals. And what happened when my lawyers filed that writ, the district court judge Gant, John Gant, granted us an evidentiary hearing. And when they did that, when he did that, he brought me back from prison, TVCJ, to the Bell County Sheriff's Office, I mean the Bell County Jail. And we started, he conducted like nine different hearings in six months. And each time, we, you know, the state presented evidence, we presented evidence, and it was just a volley of testimony. Then I got sent back to prison while the judge would consider the findings of fact and conclusions of law to come back with a recommendation for the high court, the Court of Criminal Appeals. And then we waited a year for him to come back with that finding. Uh, and it wasn't without a fight. It was like after the evidentiary hearings, you know, it was, we were waiting on a ruling and a recommendation and, and nothing was coming. So my lawyers had to file almost a rhythm mandamus with the high court to make him do that. Then it goes to the high court for them to deliberate. Now, with an actual innocence claim all by itself, the judge denied that. In his ruling, he said the only thing that he was going to grant me was prosecutor misconduct because they withheld this or withheld that. 
and grant me a new trial. Now it goes to Court of Criminal Appeals for them to agree. Well, we, of course, objected to that and said, no, I'm actually innocent. The, the high court, you need to look at this. Well, the high court came back and said nothing about the actual innocence claim. Only thing they did was grant me what the judge's recommendation was, a new trial based on prosecutor misconduct. And when they did that, I got brought back to the sheriff's department to, 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 get, a new, to get a bond and to uh, basically prepare for another trial. But, but this the main time, point of this, hold up one second, David. I just, yeah. Please let me say this. Please, because everybody needs to know this. The High Court of Crim Texas Criminal Appeals did not even acknowledge my actual innocence claim. And by law, when they have an actual innocence claim, they are independently supposed to do a review of that, of the merits of the actual innocence claim. In the opinion issued on my writ of 1107 and 1107-3, um, new scientific evidence, by law, by their own law, they're supposed to do their own independent review. They didn't even mention it in their opinion. They only think my, my opinion was like two paragraphs long versus it was supposed to be pages and pages and pages long of a thorough investigation conducted by, by their own court. So here I sit right now, missing 11 years of my life with four aggravated robbery charges on my record right now, pending uh, uh, accusations uh, without it, without any means of support of myself. I mean, I, I right now I'm in such a drastic situation, and I need and I need help in such a drastic way that I don't know what to do, to, uh, David. I'm, I'm, I got screwed out of 1.3 million dollars, which is nothing compared to losing 11 years of your life right now. I'm every, I'm doing everything but panicking right now. I mean, I'm at the verge, man. I, I still got my faith in God, but I'm I'm, I'm struggling, David. It's a tough so situation. No, no. I mean, you know, going what you're going through is absolutely incredible. Now, you know, from from my vantage point, it seems like you have an advantage uh, going back into the trial over what you had before. Because you have all this evidence that uh, should help you get an acquittal. Uh, do you at least feel confident about that? Yeah, we're going to, I mean, of course, I'm, I, of course we're going to prevail next time. But that doesn't help me out with the 11 years I lost. It doesn't help me with, the, with the, it was, I was wrongfully convicted deliberately and being maliciously prosecuted again for standing up for myself. I, what am I supposed to do right now? Am I supposed to? Am I supposed to? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I mean, I'm just, I'm just right now. I'm sitting here, and I mean, I don't have any options, man. All I hear people giving me is this their advice. Well, you can do this. You can do that. No, I can't. You're, you don't even, you know, you, you see it on the surface, but you don't know what I'm going through right now, and and and. And I need a job. I, I, you know, I've applied at so many places, David, that everybody does their applications online now, you know? So when I apply for a job, they ask me about my background. 
will I submit my will I submit to a background check? Give them the information. I have to actually be transparent and say, hey, this is what happened on an application. They don't give you the opportunity to explain it. They just want to know what you were charged with. And once you explain, well, here I was charged with these aggravated robberies. That's it. In end of the application, there's no calling you in for an interview. It's over with. You're not going to get a job with four aggravated robberies on your on your history, uh, and then you went to prison for it too. No, man. So let me ask you this: the people listening to this show, how can they help you? You know, it's hard to say it, man. But I need I. Look, I have a GoFundMe. I have a GoFundMe account set up. Okay. What's and the address of that? The address of that is at GoFundMe forward slash George Holmes. I've already raised thirteen thousand dollars on that, right? But GoFundMe takes their chunk. I've already bought a car because that's part of the that was part of the trans that's part of the fund to buy a car, right? So I bought the car so I could get back and forth to work, a dependable car. And the rest the rest of the money pretty much has been taken up to, to pay for to pay for fees, to pay for gas, to pay for, for bills that were due, um, to, to purchase things to get me on my feet, you know. So that thirteen thousand dollars is pretty much gone. I have we I have about enough money in there left now to take care of about another month of bills. And if I can't get a job, I'm dependent on people's support right now and, and, and feeling what I'm going through. I did not know it was going to be this hard. So the GoFundMe account is pretty much all I have right now until I get a job. To pay. And, you know, that takes a couple of weeks to build up one paycheck. And then they, you know, normally they you work for a week, they hold a paycheck, they hold that week back, and then in two weeks you'll get a paycheck. So I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with a bunch of reality right now. So that, that GoFundMe account is pretty much what's sustaining me. So it looks like I've raised a bunch of money. And yeah, it is. $13,000 is a lot of money. But I spent, I went and paid for a car. I spent $8,000 on the car because that's my livelihood. That's going to get me back and forth to the job. It's going to take care, take me the rest of the way, right? So, so give us that uh, address again for the GoFundMe. You can go to my Facebook page at Free George Powell. And my, my last name is spelled P-O-W-E-L-L. And we'll post that on, on this podcast as well so that people can help you out. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Sorry that uh, things are a challenge. Hopefully you'll get acquitted in your trial and then you'll be entitled to compensation at that point. Actually, actually, the prosecutor's office is immune from any type of uh, civil suit, sir. That's why the high court gave me the ruling they gave me, because they know you can't sue the prosecutor's office in Texas. They're immune from, 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 from lawsuits. They knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you again for being on the show. I thank you, I thank you very much for interviewing me, sir. And I hope that everybody out there and uh, can can join my side, man. Because it's more than it's more than just this. You know, I'm really 
I'm really trying to get involved with criminal justice reform. I just went to the uh, rally for Rodney Reed out here in Texas, who's an innocent black man who's about to be executed on November 20th if they don't give him relief. Um, so I'm just, I'm just learning how to become an advocate for people that are going through the same situation that I've been through and that I'm going through right now. And I thank you very much, David. Thank you. Hang in there. The revelation of the revolution. For support. That's George Powell. It's an incredible story. It's a hard story. And, and it's the part of the story we don't always hear. We always hear about the exoneration. We always hear about the triumph. We don't hear about the struggle to get back on their feet. We don't hear about the hardship of being held and and having to put their lives on hold as they wait for another trial, as they wait another year. It's another year. This is his life. He's already had 11 years in prison, and now he's going to have to wait longer until he can have a trial and get vindicated. This has been... The Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Thank you for joining us. There's so much more to add after this. So much support throughout these years has built me up to this day. I will not forget. I will not fail. And if I fall, I know the soldier's going to pick me back up. But I does not support soldiers. I'm not falling again. I refuse to lose. Thank you, soldiers. You get no respect. Thank you, soldiers. You get no respect from me. Thank you, soldier. Thank you, soldier. Thank you, soldier. I thank you because you saved me. Thank you, soldier.